got that can't thing outside of don't mention what yes. gotta kill you it's my best Christopher Walken impression at least you knew what it was I'm so glad I recorded that <laughs> Hi, welcome to The Film File, episode 40, the film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And when you're talking about film geeks, you can't get much geekery than myself, Lee Ford. And me, Andy Meakin. I think I've just invented a word, Andy, geekery. Is that, is that, geekery. Is that a proper word? Is it? Uh, it sounds like a place that you actually keep geeks. It does, yeah. <laughs> I've, got, I've got a bunch of geeks that I keep them in a geekery. Would you, would you like to come to the geekery and come and see all my geeks? Yes. We... I've, got, I've got a full collection of them. <laughs> One for every genre. Come by anytime. Anyway, hi. How are you doing, Andy? It's been uh, it's been a week. It's been a week. Yeah, and and what an interesting week. I got to see you twice this week as well. Yeah, and I had a nice run in with an internet troll, which uh, was quite amusing. Which I jumped in on. Someone who, when they are basically coming out with nonsense and getting disproven at every point, in order to try to discredit you, go trawling through your letterboxed history. Just to pick out a few films, go, ooh, look what they rated this one. Ooh, as though we don't all have different tastes in films. And what that's what makes us who we are. It is our, our different tastes. I mean, you and I have talked about this before. We've got probably, as has everybody, every listener, has got that one film to which somebody will go, oh, my God, how can you like that film? To yeah. another person who goes, yeah, but it's, it's a, a favourite movie. And a favourite movie, like a favourite song, is, is are those which you have to be in a frame of mind when you saw it. You have to be something that you, that you love and you enjoy. And um, yeah, fantastic. I think that's that's the joy of doing what we do. Is, is we've all got got very 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 different tastes, including some of the things that we've talked about when we've talked about movies that you've liked and I've liked, etc. So yeah, I hate this sort of pompous. Yeah, it's you. you I like this film more than you. Therefore, I'm higher educated in the as a cinephile. No, we've all got individual what, tastes. What's bizarre is he didn't dig through to find, you know, things like me rating Wild Wild West or something, which I do enjoy. He he picked Gilbert Grape, which I gave five stars to as a as a way to do, try to discredit me. Gilbert Grape, a film that is generally critically lauded. Yeah. Absolute idiot. Absolute idiot. Anyway, moving on. Anyway, we've, uh, we don't in, no, internet internet trolls no got time blocked. For him. It's no time for that. So in this week's show, we've got, uh, we'll be talking about Nashville. We'll be re-reviewing yep. Akira. Andy went to see St. Maud and I went to see On the Rocks, as well as our streaming roundup and, of course, our neat thing. So, Andy, let's start where we always start, in a segment that we like to call The News. Welcome to The News. So another week and what a week for another bunch of delays. I know, another it's so bunch of sad. And... Big delays from the big three once again. The big three who are continuing to support cinema with platitudes of next year looking great, whilst piling more rocks on top of the industry as the water levels rise. <laughs> I like the analogy, even though it's absolutely <laughs> tragic. It, it, it's shocking. I mean, one that we foresaw, June, has been put back to October 2021. Oh my goodness, that's such a long... We were so giddy with excitement that we were thinking it would see it at Christmas. And if you remember at the start of this year, I said that June is my most anticipated yeah, film for this year. Yeah, it all the way through. And now I've got to wait until October next year. But we knew that this was going to move because Wonder Woman getting placed at Christmas, 
with June a week before it, Warner Brothers were clearly not going to pick two of their own films head to head. No. So it was just a matter of time and how far it got moved. But it is a chunk of a weight. Uh, but that's more a reflection of how packed 2021 is starting to look. Part of this movement ties to the announcing closure of all of the regal chains across America from Cineworld and all the Cineworlds across the UK. Because um, Villeneuve has said to be supportive of the decision to be moved. He considers it as like it's the right thing to do. Let's wait until everyone has a chance to see this and let's not bury it too much in a time when nowhere's open. The Cineworld announcement is caused a ripple effect across the industry. I'm sure it has. And how has it caused that, Andy? Well, it's not necessarily the ripple effect that I think that they were going for. A lot of people have speculated online and we speculated ourselves that this was kind of like, okay, right, we're going to play a game of chicken and we're also going to try and pressure the government to support cinemas whilst at the same time forcing distributors to realise that they need to bring something out now. Well, that ripple effect didn't happen. The ripple effect is that everyone is moving everything. The Batman has moved to 2022. Blimey. Um, the Flash film has been delayed five months to November the 2022. Shazam yeah, 2 has been delayed seven months. Black Adam has been pulled from the schedule altogether. And a film adaptation of the Minecraft franchise, which was originally set for beginning of 2022, has vanished. Uh, the only good news is that The Matrix 4 from Warners has moved up four months. It was originally April 2022. It's now Christmas 2021. Still nothing for this year. From Universal, Jurassic World D- Dominion has moved by a full year. That was originally slated for June next year. It's now moving to June 2022. And Disney and Pixar this week, in a crippling blow, announced that Soul is skipping cinemas and will go straight to Disney Plus on Christmas Day. Well, we talked about Soul and we thought that because of the nature of the film itself, that therefore we thought Disney wouldn't pull the cinema release for this as it's uh, an important film. based around African-Americans for a start. And we thought the sensitivity of it alone would mean that it would still get a cinema release. Clearly not. Clearly it's going uh, um, straight to Disney+. Plus. I wonder if they'll go the same route that they did with Mulan uh, and charge a premium rate for it. Do we know that yet? It's going straight to free. They're not doing the premium rate. That's because it didn't prove to work. There's still pressure getting put upon Disney to reconsider what they're doing and allow cinemas worldwide, which are open, to show it especially over the Christmas period. I mean, come on. It's a no-brainer. It'll make money. And particularly since only yesterday, the London Film Festival had special screenings of Soul across the UK. And all the feedback online about it is that it's an amazing film. Some people even saying it's top-tier Pixar, one of the best, if not the best, that they've delivered to date. To get so much positivity about the film that is just going to get dumped on Disney+, Plus. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't feel right. Yeah. Now, we know this is a, a changing landscape. Uh, and we're waiting today when we record this to see how much our landscape is, is going to change and, and what those effects will be. I guess the decisions could be made, uh, and Netflix seem to be doing very well with it, sneaking into cinemas and, and giving it some kind of pre-run. I don't think that would alter the, the Disney Plus run. If, if it did manage to get at least two weeks of cinema, uh, a cinema yeah. viewing. There's people who will prefer to watch it on the big screen. There is people who will pay the money to go and support the cinemas, hashtag save our cinemas. It doesn't mean that the people who only want it for streaming have to wait six months. We're not saying that like you need to wait, you know, let's not give it to you. 
just give cinemas a chance to show it alongside a digital release. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that worked in the States with Bill and Ted. Yeah. It's the changing environment of cinema. The simultaneous releases on the screen and on home release probably will work and probably will, you know, be beneficial to both parties. So why not do it? And I know where I would see it. I'm, I'm confident uh, that I would see it in the cinema unless... unless... I couldn't get access to a cinema. Given I've cancelled my Disney Plus subscription, um, it's clear that I'm I'm not going to be watching it if it doesn't get a cinema release. Hey, little acorns, as I, they say. I, I refuse to support Disney Plus if they're refusing to support the industry that I'm part of. Okay, good. Um, I mean, and that sounded condescending, but no good, as in good for you. So, yeah. any good news out there? Uh, yes, there are some good news. There's, a, there's still films getting developed. And this is where the problem is, is because all these films are still going into development and we're bottlenecking next year and 2022 at this point in time. But let's work through some of them. So STX Films has got the North American and foreign rights to the film My Son, which is an English language adaptation of a 2017 French thriller called Mon Garçon. The new adaptation is going to be directed by Christian Carrion. Okay. And the story has it that a father whose son goes missing goes travelling to the town where his ex-wife lives in search of answers to the mystery of the missing child. And it's got James McAvoy, who's playing the father, and Claire Foy as the ex-wife. Two great names. I never saw the original. I'm aware of the original, but I, I never got to see it. Or maybe I did. Are you aware, are you aware of like um, what the twist of this film is going to be? No. And it's not the story. It's in the way they're making it. Like the original... There's no script getting given to the lead actor. James McAvoy will not have a script or dialogue ahead of time. Instead, he will be encouraged to improvise on set as each scene unfolds. The rest of the cast and crew will know what the scene's supposed to be and what events are supposed to take place, but he doesn't. So he's basically, as an actor, piecing together the mystery himself. Oh, fantastic. Blair Witch Project is famous for doing this kind of thing, that the, the cast on that had no idea what was going on. And they were just given rough notes each each day and they had to improvise around it. But this this sounds marvellous. And I want to seek out Mon Garçon and watch that because this is how they made that film. As um, the Adam Fogelson, the chairman of STX Films, has said, James will be doing the detective work of the film in real time on camera to create real tension for this thriller. We like to support bold and innovative storytelling like my son. And it sounds it sounds like a juicy idea. You know what? The more you talk about it, I'm pretty sure that I've, I've actually seen it. Now you've, you've, you've dropped those, those hints as to what the story is. I think <laughs> I've seen it. But when I used to see it back in the day when I was uh, uh, being a film critic full time, I'd see 200, 300 films a year. <laughs> so some of them, no matter how brilliant they were, would actually go, have I seen that? I'm pretty sure I think. <laughs> they kind of get slipped into your memory. Uh, Gal Gadot is going to be teaming up with Patty Jenkins for I a new saw, take on Cleopatra. I saw this, yeah. Paramount Pictures have put it into development. Now, it's important to point out that this is not related to the long-in-development film that Sony had their hands on. Yeah, wasn't Steven Soderbergh connected to that one? I know there, there have been several directors that have been attached to a Cleopatra project where David Fincher, as I said, uh, uh, Soderbergh, many others. It's been, uh, it's been mentioned on and off for at least 10 years. Yeah, and loads of directors being attached. Angelina Jolie's been attached That's at right. one point, and Lady Gaga was attached a couple of years ago. But it's nothing to do with that one. It's a completely different one, going to be scripted by Laita Calagridis, who wrote Shutter Island. Okay. No take on what aspect of Cleopatra's life it's going to look at, whether it's going to be an all-encompassing one or whether she's going to focus on a particular period. But 
Patty Jenkins and Gal Gadot working together, we saw what they did with Wonder Woman. Uh, I'd be interested to see what they can do with something historical drama takes. My opinion of, of Gadot has changed so much in the past couple of years because I had no time for her when she was cast for Wonder Woman. I was like, oh, bland model becoming an actress. No, not not with it. But she is absolutely charming in everything that I've seen her in. Looking forward to seeing her on Death of the Nile as well. Yeah, she's got a great screen presence. So I can't wait to see. You need someone with a great screen presence to be playing Cleopatra because it has to be a bigger-than-life presentation, basically. So I'm all up for that. Resident Evil film series is getting a reboot with Constantine Films because uh, we finally got past all of the Paul W.S. Anderson churned out. I dropped out of those very early on in the series. (laughs) I saw the first one, thought it was passable. Saw the second one, thought it was impassable. And then I just passed. (laughs) And just passed from that point on. Well, uh, this new one is going to be penned and directed by Johan Roberts, who gave us 47 metres down. And it's going to have a much darker tone that's much more horror than action-based. Roberts has cited the first two games of the series as his big influence. And the story is going to be following the incidences of the first two games. So you'll see characters like Claire Redfield, Chris Redfield, Jill Valentine. Uh, Cast-wise, K.S. Scodelario, who was in Crawl. Don't know whether you saw Crawl. Uh, I know of it. I didn't see it. You've got Hannah John Kamen from Ant-Man and the Wasp. You've got Robbie Amell, who everyone knows from uh, the DC TV shows. Brother of Steven. You've got Tom Hopper. You've got Tom Hopper from Umbrella Academy. Okay. You've got Avan Jogia from Now Apocalypse and Neil McDonough from Legends of Tomorrow. Always reliable. And they're, Neil they're going to be playing familiar characters such as Claire Redfield, etc. Hopper is going to be Albert Wesker. Uh, Yogia is Leon Kennedy. So it's all the key characters from those early games that people latch onto, given the proper horror treatment on film that they deserved. Because I've got a soft spot for Paul W.S. Anderson's films. But they were not Resident Evil films. No, they weren't. And and I tell you what, I remember, I never played the first Resident Evil game, but I, I got the second one, I think, when I got my, would it have been PS2, PS1 even? It was PS1. PS1. And I played it and it, it, it scared me to death because you always got to that door. Do you remember? You get to a door and <laughs> then you think, oh my goodness, what's beyond the door? It could be anything, could be a horde of zombies. Who knew? And I, I loved Resident Evil 2. And I just, it was so ripe. To, uh, yeah. to to be a film because it, it, was, it was a very cinematic. It was the first kind of game. That and Silent Hill were the first cinematic games I really, really played. Uh, I did read a, a George A. Romero script, which was a lot closer to the games, which which was never produced clearly, but but always really, really interesting. So we're talking to Paul W.S. Anderson. I, I, you've got all the love, I know. Uh, Monster Hunter <laughs> uh, teaser shown a dragon attacking a plane in the brand new teaser release. Uh, just very, very shortly. Oh, oh man. I mean, I, I am all over this Monster Hunter thing because like, like, I do have my love for Paul W.S. Anderson. I love his big, dumb, fun approach, and this is just more big, dumb, fun. A dragon attacking a plane. That's it. I mean, I want this on the big screen now. Save our cinemas with dragons attacking planes. So World War Z was directed by Mark Forster, who also gave us Christopher Robin and Quantum of Solace. Well, he's been given another franchise to tackle. Can you guess what it is? Uh, well, I'm thinking, by the, by the way you're going with that, that it's going to be something that I'm really interested in. It's Thomas the Tank Engine. Uh, <laughs> okay. Well, I've yep. got a little one, uh, so maybe. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to know if you've got a little one. <laughs> oh, moving quickly on. It's going to be one of those shows. So the Thomas and Friends Spoiler, universe, which I includes haven't. books, toys, games, TV series. It's now in its 24th season of the TV wow. series. 24 seasons. 
Um, well, Forster's teaming up with Mattel Films to helm and produce a new feature, which is going to be part live action, part animation. It's it, Apparently, Mattel are going to be also developing Barbie films, Barney films, Wishbone movies, etc. But what an interesting choice of a director. But he is a very versatile director. Well, he is. I mean, he's, he's done everything from horror to, to, to Bond, as you mentioned, uh, high drama, uh, low drama, and, 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 and basically family films as well. It it it'll be easy to sneer and go, oh, Thomas the Tank Engine, but there's a reason why it's so long lasting. It's ideal family entertainment, and maybe this could be the Paddington for next year. Who knows? Elizabeth Moss, we like Elizabeth, we do Elizabeth like Moss, it. don't we? Um, we certainly did enjoy Invisible Man at the beginning of the year. Her career is well and truly on the rise, which is quite apt because she's going to be she signed on to play former Congresswoman Katie Hill in the feature She Will Rise, which is coming from Bloomhouse TV, Maniac Productions, and Love and Squalor Pictures. Now, Katie Hill was a Democratic senator, I believe, or Congresswoman, yep. and her private life basically forced her out of government, but she'd hadn't she suffered? And stop me if I'm wrong, Andy. Hadn't she suffered uh, uh, domestic abuse? prior to that. Yes. Um, I mean, this is going to be adapted from Hill's forthcoming book, which she was a young woman with no prior political experience who used charm and common sense to win over the people in her district and thrust her into the halls of power. However, behind the scenes in private, she was concealing a cycle of domestic abuse. She was trapped at home, which infamously culminated in the release of very intimate photos and the revelation of her own personal mistakes that brought her crashing back down from her fall, like in a fall from grace. So it... It's a political and personal drama. Uh, Moss, Lindsay McManus and Michael Seitzman are going to produce with Seitzman adapting the script and Hill herself is on board as executive producer. Cool. I believe you've got some news on the Green Lantern series. Yes. Now, everybody knows that the uh, Green Lantern movie is kind of the footnote of, of disastrous uh, comic adaptations. You know, what? I, I didn't hate it. A lot of I people... enjoyed it. Yeah, I, I mean, it's I got Ryan Reynolds it. in. Of course, I enjoyed it. It, it had your man crush in it, who was as always affable on screen for whatever reason. And from what I know, uh, behind the scenes, there were there were a ton of rewrites. It tried very, very hard to be DC's Iron Man. That's what yeah. they wanted. They wanted a sort of uh, a more B-list character to launch, as they've been trying to do for, for nearly over 10 years now, trying to launch a, a DC Universe uh, uh, film franchise. So Green Lantern is now coming to HBO Max under the uh, writing of uh, Seth Graham Smith, who gave us Abraham Lincoln Vampire Hunter. Yeah. No casting at this time. The show will focus on, however, the Earth-centric Green Lanterns, which is Guy Gardner, who you remember famously from the one punch from Batman in, uh, in Justice League, which is still one of the funniest comics ever made. Uh, Jessica Cruz, Simon Baz, and the original Green Lantern, Alan Scott. We'll also have alien lanterns such as fan favorite Kilowog, as well, of course, Sinestro, who now we know is a former lantern turned villain. So we're looking forward to that. And whether we'll get to see it in the UK and how we'll get to see it in the UK is still up for plenty of debate. And depending on schedule and safety procedures, uh, shooting should start next year. I'm quite glad that this is going to be a TV series because I know that the Green Lantern Corps movie has been pitched around and bandied around for the past few years. But as that Green Lantern film showed, the, the problems with that Green Lantern film, aside from the, the cgi of the costume... Which I didn't mind. Idea. I was going to see if you mentioned that, but I, I, I thought it's, it's an alien costume. It made absolutely perfect sense for me to have a costume that, that wasn't fabric, but... 
I know I'm in a minority. <laughs> uh, but the, the biggest problem with the film was that it was too grounded on Earth. It, yeah. It tried to go cosmic, but then pulled it back as soon as it went, oh, and here's the outer space, but now we're back to Earth, back to Earth. But that's because the constraints of like a two-hour runtime kind of limits where you can actually go with it. And it's only on sequels that you get to see things that usually expand out. But a TV series could go completely crazy from the very first episode and people will embrace it more. And I think it it gives it chance to show more scope on the whole thing. I know they're going to be focusing on the Earth-based lanterns, but come on, they're going to show us. I was going to say, interestingly enough, no, Hal Jordan, which is the Green Lantern that I know. I've not read Green Lantern in probably 20-odd years, and I I don't know the state of play with the characters. Last time I read Green Lantern, Green Arrow was still uh, still in the title, and that ages me. The interesting thing on this news is that Jeff Johns' name is not near it. Well, isn't he kind of president now of sort of DC film entertainment? He's he's within this. I think he's he's not necessarily the president of the film entertainment. He's more heading up the creative teams on a lot of projects, but he's not necessarily going to be linked to the HBO stuff. Okay, because uh, I know J.J. Abrams is, is basically championing a lot of these. For yeah. HBO Max, uh, but from what I gather, isn't Jeff Johns the Kevin Feige of, of the the DC universe? Yeah, not at one point he was getting pushed forwards for it, but he's now not. Um, Walter Hamada's basically the Feige. Okay, but the the interesting thing about Jeff Johns's name not being straight away linked with the writing and development of this is that he's known for one of the best arcs of the Green Lantern comic book series. Oh, right. As I said, it's been a long time since I've read it. The, the uh, Brightest Day, Darkest Night arcs, which are absolute beautiful multiple volumes of storytelling. Maybe he is involved somewhere along the way, but to not have his name on the initial announcement suggests to me that they're wanting to step away slightly from him. But hey, he's having fun with other parts of the DC universe, so let's let him play around where he wants. So moving away from DC, onto Marvel. Oh, there's always some Marvel news, which is always nice. You know what? Talking of Marvel news... I'm still waiting for the Marvel news where they show a trailer or teaser for Eternals because that must be ready now at least to show a teaser. If we've got had a Batman teaser, we should have had an Eternals teaser. The thing is, because Eternals has now been put back to the back end of next year, they're not going to rush any teasers out, are they? No, I'm just I'm just griping here. We're, we could gripe every week about the amount of things that um, we really need to see, which we're not going to see for ages. Uh, but... There's been a lot of Spider-Man news over the past few weeks. I'm kind of all over the place with this because clearly didn't go where I thought the third Tom Holland Spider-Man film was going to go and expecting, as probably everybody else did, to be um, Craven the Hunter-based. It seems to be going, yeah. well, can I use the word batshit crazy on our own podcast? I think you can. I, I think you just it. did. <laughs> so the the John Watts-helmed third film is now going to see Benedict Cumberbatch swing by as Doctor Strange. Now, we had the announcement last week that Jamie Foxx will be reprising his Electro role, but he won't be blue. Cumberbatch's yep. casting would indicate that the multiverse will certainly now, I guess, come into play, and that will come off the back end of WandaVision as well. So that yep. kind of explains how and why Fox is going to show up. And there's also uh, um, been a ton of rumours over the last week that we're going to see at least cameos from Andrew Garfield and Toby Maguire as Holland's predecessors in the spider suit. Yeah, so it, it, there's a lot a, a lot going on, and whether this is going to be a, a simple way to get out of the, oh no, everyone knows that Peter Parker is Spider-Man. In the comics, they actually had magic being the reason why people forgot he, right. he had revealed himself to the world. 
So maybe Cumberbatch's Doctor Strange is going to weave some kind of hocus pocus that goes wrong. And that's what breaks open the multiverse. We don't know at this point in time. We can only speculate. But it's definitely ramping up to be more tied into the Marvel Universe than what... I mean, the previous two films were only tied in in the fact that people from the Marvel films jumped into it. Whereas this looks like it's going to be an integral part of where the next stage of the Marvel Universe is going on film. Because we already know Multiverse. We already know WandaVision. And this looks like it's key in there as well. The whole fabric of reality is breaking open. The universes are melding together. Come on, it's coming to Secret Wars, isn't it? Yeah. Uh, also, you know, we, we've we've hinted at this. If you've, of course, seen uh, Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse. So, you know, it's already hinted upon. Interestingly enough, doesn't this sort of throw cold water, therefore, on DC's Flash movie, which seems to be a very, very similar <laughs> think, sort of uh, uh, concept? It kind of does. Um, it, it, it is basically... but. The movie universes are emulating exactly how the comic book worlds went. That as soon as one of the um, big publishers went, hey, we're just doing this kind of um, storyline. The other one went, hey, we've got a very similar looking one over here. <laughs> and you know what? I'm all for it. I'm fine with it. We need, the, we need the Flash movie to crash the universes together to allow all the DC films to be their own thing. And we need it in the Marvel universe to give a reason why the X-Men can exist within this MCU, yet no one's ever heard of them. Mm. I wouldn't say for the Fantastic Four. It works for both universes. Some people, will, some of the fanboys will start moaning, oh, they're just copying them, oh, they're just copying them. And they're completely missing the point that comics have always had similarities between the different big titles. So let's just sit back and, like we've often said, embrace the wealth of comic book entertainment that if these were out when we were kids and growing up, our heads will have exploded. Absolutely. Even though I still not, I don't have time for a red-eyed, angry Superman. Yeah. Unless you're doing a, a, an Elseworlds one-off. And that's the news. If you're a fan of uh, The Film File and you want to hear more, then please uh, get in touch with us. And you can reach us at... Over on Twitter, at Film File UK. And on Instagram, on... Film File UK. And if you're enjoying the show, please hit that subscribe button. And please leave a review, because reviews help us uh, to build a show and build a following. And, and tell all your friends. Why not? Have you got friends? Why aren't you telling them already? Okay, so over the last couple of weeks, Andy has been trawling through the films that he has missed. We started out with Oscar classics, and now we're doing By the Year. And the film that I picked for Andy for the film that he'd not seen is in 1975's Nashville. A satirical musical ensemble, comedy, drama, you name it, everything's in it, directed, of course, by Robert Altman. The film follows various people involved in a country and gospel music business in Nashville, Tennessee, over a five-day period leading up to a gala concert for a populist outsider running for president on the replacement party ticket. Uh, Nashville is, of course, cited for being probably the most Altman of any Robert Altman film, hence the term Altman-esque. The film contains 24 main characters, an hour's worth of musical numbers and multiple storylines, and features a fantastic ensemble cast, which includes Barbara Baxley, Ned Beatty, Karen Black, uh, Keith Carradine, Geraldine Chaplin, Jeff Goldblum in a very early performance, Scott Glenn, Shelley Duvall, uh, Michael Murphy, uh, uh, an Altman favourite, Keenan Wynn, Gwen Wells, and a whole host of Altman contributors. So, Andy, it's, it's a film that's been plaudited, won uh, numerous accolades upon its release, five Academy Award nominations, and winning for Best Original Song. What did you think of Nashville? So, starting to watch this film, I found my mind getting distracted within the first half hour. I was finding it hard to keep up to start with. So I then stopped it and went back to the beginning and started again and 
fell straight into it. And it's a complexly woven film. I mean, the, the scattershot approach that Altman brought to things like MASH, where he just like threw different scenarios and linked them subtly together, is all over the place in here. But it, it works well for the film because it captures the chaotic nature of, of Nashville, basically. It, you can look at this film in many ways. You can see it as a commentary of celebrity obsession, as you've got people who are obsessed with country music stars and the, the town of Nashville and everything it brings. You can look at it at an analysis of the desire for fame because you've got the wannabes who think they can sing or think they have musical talent who clearly don't. And you've also got a political satire buried within there throughout the film with a, a presidential hopeful who you never see called Hal Philip Walker, who's voiced by Thomas Hal Phillips and his tour van going round, giving out political messages in the background, which if you pay particular attention to, have some absolutely hilarious viewpoints on politics of the time. It's, it, it's everything. It's everything in one film, which is what Altman was known for. And like you say, this is the most Altman of Altman's films. It is completely muddled together with multiple storylines, but it's the kind that make you want to go back and revisit it as soon as it finished. Literally, as soon as this film finished, I thought to myself, okay, do I put that straight back on again and re-explore it and spot the things that I didn't pick up on last time? Because there's so much going on. It'd be easy to say that it's set in the 70s and it feels dated. And at the start, I thought maybe it would do. But by the end of it, I realised how relevant it actually is to even today's society. Because we have an obsession with celebrity status. You see it on reality TV shows and talent shows occupied by talentless. We've got apathy towards politicians with the most unlikely candidate resonating with bizarre messages about patriotism and bringing down the corruption, which is echoed in this film. And you've got a news reporter played marvellously by Geraldine Chaplin, who's basically, she, she's the one to feed us as the audience through this weird world. But she's genuinely grabbing any opportunity to report on pretty much anything including a rambling piece while she stood in a junkyard, which had me in stitches. It is genuinely funny, but also really bitingly satirical at the same time. It's got that, as we said, it is the most Altman of Altman films. Uh, it's got that style that he that he introduced where everybody's mic'd up, so characters' uh, conversations overlap. Uh, no one knew exactly when they were on camera at times, so they would uh, they would just continue performing uh, and speaking and and um, suddenly found that they are they they were the center of the scene so it, it does have that sense that, that we kind of eavesdrop in on, on culture conversations which is is how the film was made uh, it's been a long time since I've seen it and at the time when I saw it I liked it an awful lot and, and I was I think I was still at film school so studying Altman was a big part of that mash is still my, my favorite Altman film it's it's the one that resonates and the one that I always go back to and and really the, the first film that that started to introduce that that, that style that he, that he became so so well known for, but it it is a, it's a truly remarkable film and um, truly remarkable cast. Just in, enough of, of the Altman extras just to make it feel like going into it you you understand the ensemble. I mean, I, I didn't mention Lily Tomlin, for instance, uh, and I do remember and, and stop me if I'm wrong because it's been so long since I've seen it. Jeff Goldblum, he plays the guy on the tricycle, yeah, and he can the silent tricycle man. He doesn't say anything, does he? And he just kind of swerves in and out of uh, of scenes and becomes almost almost the linking device the same way that the uh, the loudspeaker was the, the linking device in mash he he links it with like going from scene to scene but he he also like 
he has a, an enigmatic presence in some of them when he does little, small little like magic tricks to surprise people. And it's early Jeff Goldblum is as bizarrely weird as modern Jeff Goldblum is. And it's he's so well-placed. Everyone is well-placed in this film. I mean, it's important to point out the really strong female cast within here who are playing very different and very key roles throughout. Shelley Duval as Martha, the niece of one of the occupants of Nashville, is fantastic as a groupie. You've got Gwen Wells as Suleen Gay, who is very naive and thinks that she's got talent and wants to be a singer. And when she does sing songs, it's clear she has no talent. <laughs> but with all the songs in here, I, I read up on this and the cast all sang their own stuff. And in some cases, they wrote their own lyrics as well. Yeah, I think Keith Carradine had been a performer as well as as, uh, as a musician. Which is brilliant because it, if you listen to the lyrics of some of the songs, they are so... They, it, they initially sound like typical country and western, but the lyrics are so far out that they are they are used to poke fun at the extremities of country and western kind of traditions. It is brilliant, but you've also got the absolutely marvellous composition, such as I'm Easy, sung by Carradine, which deservedly picked up the Academy Award. It is such a great scene with that song being sung and multiple female members of the audience all thinking that the song is about them. <laughs> the more that I'm thinking about it now and talking about it, the more I just want to just like stop recording this podcast and go watch it again. It's one of those kind of films that I feel that as I'm thinking about it, I, I kind of probably missed a few things as well that want to go back and find. You're doing exactly that. You're talking me back into going to see it. And, and many times I've, I've thought, you know, I must rewatch Nashville. It's been that long since I've seen it. I think I saw it in the 80s. Uh, and, and, and it's right for reviewing. I think now another important part of that is, is that um, my musical taste has changed. And I think the country yeah. aspect always slightly put me off Nashville. But now I, I, I embrace more musical styles than I've ever done, including including having written some country stuff. I, I'm more drawn to it in a way that I, I wasn't before. So the film was a huge box office success in a way that this film couldn't be made these days and, and have that, that sort of massive theatrical release and, and do as well as it did. It was the 27th highest grossing film of that year, 1976. The film grossed approximately $10 million in the United States. It's one of those films that just loved by the by the critics, being described as the funniest epic vision of America to ever reach the screen. People felt uh, they understood more about people and felt somehow wiser. It's that good a movie. It it, it was an extraordinary filmmaker at the, at the height of his game, Altman. And, and Nashville is an extraordinary film. And the one thing you've done, Andy, is taught me into going back and watching it again. <laughs> well, I, I I look forward to hearing how you find your revisit of it because I, I want to revisit this. I'm really looking forward to revisiting it. And as much as I adore MASH, I think that I kind of enjoy Nashville more. Oh, okay. You, you have to give credit to Altman who managed to craft a film focusing on 24 different characters. And not lose sight of any of them. Yeah, not making any of them feel superfluous. Everyone has a point in here. And what a great lineup of cast. What a great lineup of songs. What a great piece of satire. Marvellous film. Just on a side note, if you want to see a really stunning early Jeff Goldblum uh, appearance, he'd already done California Split with, with Altman. But around the same time, a little bit later, he did a, a film called Between the Lines about a, a small town uh, newspaper in which he plays, he plays a reporter on it. Absolutely fantastic film. One of my all-time favourite films. And, and it was my introduction to Goldblum. You ever want to see something with early Goldblum at the, at the beginning of his chart? 
one that, that kind of set Goldblum up for life. Try and get to see between the lines. So next week, your mission, if you choose to accept it, Andy, is the year 2001. And out of 2001, I've picked Wonder Boys, starring uh, Michael Douglas, Tobey Maguire, uh, Robert Downey Jr. It's a film that when I saw it, absolutely loved it. Haven't revisited it again, but I remember seeing it and thinking, this is a great film. Interested to see if you think it's a great film too. I'll get that watch for next week and report back what my thoughts are. Brilliant. Okay, so Andy and I both had a chance to uh, meet up in a darkened room. Yes, it was a cinema, and we did socially distance. Uh, to bring you uh, a couple of reviews, um, two independent ones and one that we saw together, which is a re-release, 4K restoration of the 1988 Japanese animated post-apocalyptic cyberpunk film, Akira. A boy who was in an accident on an old city highway was brought to the lab seems that he's their new subject for human experimentation. You must take a look at this data. It's phenomenal. Is it safe, Doctor? Uh, what did you people do? The time of atonement is upon us. Are your hearts prepared? The time is now. He's developed so much power in such a short time, it's unbelievable. Keep away! Are you saying he has that kind of energy? So, set in a dystopian uh, 2019, which makes you wonder why they didn't release it last year. But Akira tells the story of Kaneda, a leader of a biker gang, a childhood friend, Yatsuo acquires incredible telekinetic abilities after a motorcycle accident, eventually threatening an entire military complex of its chaos and a rebellion in this sprawling futuristic metropolis of Neo Tokyo. This is a film that not only influenced the generation is now part of that generation there wasn't a time when you could leave the room and not be culturally affected by the images of akira so seeing it again and i saw this probably i'm thinking late 90s on a on a vhs copy that's how how uh, long ago it is it was interesting going back to this 4k restoration and not seeing a dubbed version, but seeing it in its native Japanese with subtitles. It was an interesting experience. But before I talk about it, Andy, bring us up to date with, with the re-release of Akira. So Katsuhiro Otomo's film, which is the cyberpunk-infused analogy of military and science, it's three decades old, so it got 4K restoration, as lots of things are getting these days. Now, the 4K restoration is as good as expected, but it also serves to bring out some of the imperfections on the original print at times. But I don't think that's a bad thing because the imperfections of the animation at times lent it a certain charm. However, the sound on this new mix is what really stood out. And yeah. this is a film that I, I watched when it first got released for the Western audience with the um, Americanized voices, which was 89 or 90 in the UK. Yeah, I must have seen it in, back in 1990 then. So VHS, I've, I own it on. DVD, I own it on. Blu-ray, I own it on. And I've watched it multiple times with different TV settings and setups, full surround sound system. I have seen it at the cinema once before, about 10 or 12 years ago when it was on as a special screening but this time it was a totally different experience because the sound mapping just drew you completely into the film and this was where you will not be able to emulate this sound at home regardless of how good your system is because that cinema sound is what made this film really stand out i was completely lost within it the film is adapted from the manga series which was still not complete at the time and there's diversions from the manga that got finished 
in the years that followed. But this is one of the seminal anime films of all time. This is the one that awoke a desire for more anime in the West, leading to a deluge of property from the good, Appleseed, Wings of the Honey, Amase, Dominion Tank Police, to the average, Fist of the North Star, Crying Freeman, to the just plain wrong, Urat Sokodoji, Legend of the Overfiend. And if you've seen that film, you know why that is just pure wrong. <laughs> I'm not, <laughs> but I'm now I'm never going to see it. <laughs> Let's just say uh, demons and um, phalluses. Ah, moving on. <laughs> so what, for, for me, what was what was so amazing about this film is a, a couple of points. One is I forgot how funny it was as well. <laughs> and especially the sort of um, big swipes of uh, 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 politics and religion and, uh, and government and the military, um, the military arms, so to speak. They are. There were some very, very broad swipes, which for, for me, I must have missed the first time around. And again, I think that's because I've seen it in Japanese this time with, with subtitles. I, I, I find myself really, really put off by by the voices on it. The the animation is still superb. It's it's like it's like looking back on Fantasia and going, eh, it'd be okay if it wasn't for the music. It's 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 still absolutely breathtaking and beautiful. Yeah. Not one iota of uh, computer-assisted shots in sight. Purely hand-drawn animation, which which is still jaw-dropping in places. And absolutely outstanding special effects. Beautiful, clean, crisp animation style that that really set a standard for against every other sort of anime film that I've ever seen. Because to me, none of them had that that quality that, that Akira had, and, and nothing that drew me in. I, I seem to remember being confused by the plot. The first time I saw it, this time not at all. It, was, it seemed very, very clear. I can't understand why I was confused by the plot the first time. I, I can completely understand it. it. It's all down to your first time of watching it was the dub version. Yes. And when we finally got, when it came out on DVD, the subtitled version in the UK, and you got both versions on the same disc, and it was like watching a whole different film. And so I watched them both back to back to take notes. And it is that the dubbing misses so much of the story. Right. There's the moment in the film when they're both locked in the cell. Um, he's there with Kai. And that she's talking about what the revolution's about. In the dubbed version, you get nothing. But in that subtitled version, the whole layers of the political elements get discussed there. You get more of the backstory of Akira himself in the proper subtitled version. It is that the dubbing was so loose in the story that it left it very confusing. So I completely get it. And this is why I always urge people watch things in their original language with the subtitles, because it's been, especially when it's coming from like Japan, where so much can be said in so few syllables, you lose so much because they have to condense into a five second space what would normally take 15 to 20 seconds in the English language. And it's because our language is it, our language is pointless. <laughs> 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 our language doesn't get doesn't get to the point quick enough whereas japanese does an anime should always be watched in japanese and be a fast reader for a film that came out in 1988 it's it surprisingly still feels relevant in a lot of ways and, and doesn't feel dated and and this was a film that that began really the launch of the japanese cyberpunk genre and awakening western culture to it and and it had such a massive effect i mean you saw there, there were clips from akira that appeared in music videos um, it, that have been replicated in live action western movies and in, in video games it really did have that much of a popular cultural worldwide impact that that seems seems forgotten now because we we accept that style of filmmaking without an akira i don't think you would have had a matrix without an akira 
uh, as influence, you wouldn't have had things being replicated in, in Rick and Morty, for instance. It yeah. really did take the world by storm. And that's why, you know, it's still classed as one of the best animated films, let alone uh, Japanese animated film or, or science fiction films, one of the greatest animated films ever made. It's a top tier film. It is. There's a reason why I've bought it in multiple formats. And let's be honest, I'm going to end up buying the 4K version once I've got a player that will play 4K. It's absolutely brilliant. And no matter how many times I watch it, I fall in love with it again. And I fell in love with it last week when we sat and watched it. It's on a limited release across the UK at the moment. If you've never seen it, go and treat yourself. It's an absolute pleasure of a cyberpunk anime that everyone should enjoy. There's been a live action project for Akira being mooted for at least the last decade, probably the last two decades. Um, American studios picked it up. I know at one point Leonardo DiCaprio held the rights to it. That's right, yeah. Uh, and every uh, last news on this was that it was looking at maybe a TV series, but that seems to have gone quiet. Now, I know a lot of people are opposed to the idea of doing a remake of it, but having read the manga and knowing how much extra material is in there, I'm open to the idea of seeing a new interpretation. In 2017, director Takiya Watiti was named as the film's director uh, for the adaptation uh, and was originally scheduled for release in uh, 2021. Filming was planned to start in California in, in July 2019. However, Warner Brothers put the work on indefinite hold just prior to filming, as uh, Watiti had chosen to direct his sequel to Thor Ragnarok, Thor Love and Thunder. I think eventually we will see Akira return. Like you said, it's still relevant to today. So it is a story that could do with a revisit and a remodeling. Whether we get it in an anime format or a live action, who knows? But Akira, just like the boy in the actual film, will return. So Andy and I also seen a couple of other films. Andy, you had the pleasure of seeing, or did you, uh, St. Maud? How long have you been doing this? Just over a year. Have you seen a lot of death? Yes. Now, what's going on, Katie? I just want to see you loosen up. <laughs> Nothing worthwhile comes easily. There's a lot of films out at the moment, so it's good that we both got to see something different because it gives us some additional things that we've managed to catch because a wealth of material out there. And St. Maud is a debut film from writer-director Rose Glass, and it follows a recent convert to Roman Catholicism, Maud, played by Morfid Clark, a hospice nurse who becomes obsessed with the person in her care, Amanda, played by Jennifer Earle, a dancer who she's fallen from grace and she's suffering from cancer, and Maud sees her as project for her uh, her religion she sees her that she can save her soul and make her make her pass along and enter the kingdom of heaven maud has well and truly been obsessed by her conversion to faith but something's not right with maud and her past has an air of mystery to it and in addition she appears to be having visions or hearing the voice of god which are guiding her to do things now this film sat with me after i watched it I walked out at the end, and even now it's still echoing around within the chambers of my mind, and I want to go back and revisit it because it's absolute... It doesn't do anything that we've not seen before, but it's no less of an impact because of it. Morphid is absolutely engaging as Maud. The film is a slow build from the normality of a small seaside town she lives in, the mundanity of her life. Then there's a gradually 
uneasy feeling that something isn't right, which is handled in such a deft manner. Little tricks to the lens, small effects word work, making you go, did I just see something then? A growing sense of unease until the final act comes along swift and shocking, leaving a lasting impression. This film is chillingly, brilliantly British. Mm-hmm. And I can't, I can't urge people to go and see it enough. This is a great debut from like, a new de- writer-director. And if this is what they can do out the gate, I am looking forward to seeing what Rose Glass brings further down the line. A simple film that doesn't outstay its welcome, but leaves an impression on your mind that will have you uneasy afterwards. Would you class this film as a horror film then? It's a psychological horror. I know some people don't class things that don't have slasher gore and crunching of bones as horror, but this is a psychological horror. This messes with your mind. This plays on the whole demonic possession aspect, which might or might not be demonic possession. It might just be hallucinations. So it's all about the it's all about the chilling aspects of human nature with a possible outside influence. Okay, and that's State Maud. Um, my film for review is On the Rocks, the eighth uh, produced film by Sophia Coppola. Hi, Dad. Hey, kiddo. So Dean's going away a lot, huh? Dad. Raise your hand. If that sounds fishy. Maybe he's just not interested in me anymore. Impossible. He should be worshipping the ground you walk on. And if not, sloppy move. I think we should follow him. Can you just act a little less excited about this? This is my life. Uh, it might be falling apart. On the rocks, we are. And as one would expect from Sophia Coppola, it's, it's a beautiful film to look at. It stars Rashida Jones as Laura, uh, who is married to Dean, played by Marlon Wayans, and they're two kids they live in a perfect picture perfect life in in new york until she begins to suspect that her husband's cheating on her as her worries grow laura turns to her aging lothario dad felix played by bill murray in a role that well only bill murray could play to help her get to the bottom of her husband's behavior is he having the affair or isn't he or is this a film about a daughter and a father reconnecting again it's two years since uh, apple announced that they were going to team with indie heroes, uh, A24, to partner on original films, and, and this is the first one out of the gate. It is a very Sophia Coppola film in, in every way. It deals with with people who live in a, a very elitist lifestyle. Um, Felix, Bill Murray's character, is, is a multimillionaire uh, because he's a, an art dealer and knows everybody and anybody in any hotel in any bar in new york city and across the world they live in a picture perfect apartment that only elitist people in new york could ever ever think about living it's it's a film where not an awful lot happens but there's a there's a charm to it uh, and I, even though it, it's so slight there's a lot of sophia coppola films are there's there's a a rhythm to it that, that makes it makes it intoxicating nothing big happens in this film and when even when the small things happen it it looks so pretty murray's felix is a, is a man from another age who exists in a in a in a new york that, that i don't even know if it exists anymore plush leather chairs maitre d's who know his name uh, know what he likes to drink coppola's dialogue is is rhythmic in a way that you would expect and it really is a film about a father and a, and a daughter reconnecting as much as it is what the main plot is about about marriage he's, he's a mis- an aging misogynist he, he doesn't trust women um, and women don't trust him and he thinks that's the way the world is i liked it my partner saw it as well and she didn't like it she was waiting for something to happen all the way through and i think that's the thing with sophia coppola films they're, they're about about nuance as opposed to, to, to massive plot shifts 
it takes its time to get into it. As soon as Bill Murray comes on screen, that's when you're sold because he's so endearing. Um, he, he just steals every scene. Rashida Jones is, is credible and full of regret. She's the heart of the film. But it's Murray that you want to watch every time because he's Bill Murray, even playing this this character. There's tenderness to it and there, there's love to it. And, and you probably think this is uh, Sophia Coppola maybe crying out for a relationship they had with a father. But it's, it's, it's very, very light. It's very slight. It is charming. It's also very, very gorgeous. I struggle with Sophia Coppola films. If those are the problems that you have with her, then this film is certainly not the film for you because it elevates yeah. it elevates all all the all the things that she does which are which which are slivers into into life which are always very very slight they're always very very beautiful her films she always yeah. she knows where to point the camera and she knows how to to make good looking films but i but i totally get what you said this is not my favorite of hers i've i've not seen beguiled so i don't know if if that's a stronger film with a, with a, a stronger text, but everything like um, uh, Virgin Suicides or Bling Ring and all those sorts of films are, are usually people who are living in an elitist world uh, with a great soundtrack, but but lives are, are, are quite shallow. And this sort of represents that as well. Marie Antoinette was, was, uh, was, was as guilty of that as anything else. But she does have a charm. She does have a she does have a, a cinematic charm that she brings to every film. So if you're not a fan, then this film will certainly not win you over. If you want something that that, that looks great, uh, is is very slight and and slightly uninvolving, but worth seeing for Bill Murray's fantastic performance, then On the Rocks could be the film for you. It's just great to have such a diverse range of films showing on UK cinemas at the moment. Yeah. It's an ideal time for film lovers to just go and lap something up and explore the wealth of entertainment that's out there. And this film was met by... uh, you know, when I saw it in the, in the cinema, I saw it with a, with a paying audience and, and they chortled and loved it all the way through. And, and maybe for them, this is not a film that they would have normally gone to see because they might have been seeing the blockbuster, but the need just to get out and sit in a, in a, in a cinema again. Yeah. Uh, so let's have a quick roundup of what's coming on to streaming over this next week. Yeah, hit me with it. What have you got? On Now TV this week, if you like mindless action, you've got Bloodshot, which is on there at the moment. Mindless, actually, is the right term for that. Yes. But... One film that most people will be looking forward to is A Beautiful Day in the Neighbourhood is landing on there by this weekend. And that's the Tom Hanks starring film about Mr. Rogers. Can't wait to see that. I missed that in the cinema. I'm really disappointed I didn't get to see it. On Netflix, nerds like me are looking forward to the return of Star Trek Discovery, of course. Ooh, is it, when's that open? That's this Friday. Ah. So, oh, so looking forward to the third season starting of that. Uh, Dr. Seuss's The Grinch from Illumination has landed on there this week. And one film that we were really bigging up last week, The Trial of the Chicago 7, that finally arrives on Netflix this coming Friday. So there's still a chance to catch it at the cinemas, but you've got it to look forward to on Netflix. And over on Amazon, the first two of the Bloomhouse anthology, uh, Welcome to the Bloomhouse, have landed. Black Box, which sees a man who lost his wife and his memory in a car accident, who undergoes an experimental treatment, which makes him question who he really is, and the lie in which... Two parents help their daughter cover up the killing of her best friend. For families on Amazon, you've got Ben 10 versus the universe. I've got a soft spot for Ben 10 animations. Completely I quite like Ben 10. My, my sons grew up while this was on TV, and this was like the He-Man for their generation. It was that kind of like, yeah, it's actually quite good to watch. Uh, for fanboys, you've got Batman Death in the Family. Uh, there's the Gerard Butler Action Fest Greenland, which we both saw the trailer of together about a month ago. 
and we were quite excited. <laughs> I thought it looked okay. You you were less impressed. <laughs> uh, but you've also got Personal History of David Copperfield, which is on Amazon Prime at Not the moment, really and Cajillionaire, which comes out later this week. And also got a cinema release as well, hasn't it? It has, yeah. It's got a limited cinema release, so you can track it down and watch it on the big screen. But like I say, it's coming to streaming. It's a really good time for multiple releases across the streaming platforms now i'm looking forward to seeing uh first man which about neil armstrong which i missed at the cinema which oh, opened on film. netflix a couple of weeks ago overlord uh jj abraham's uh produced movie oh, which i missed at the cinema yeah. looking forward that's launched this friday the long way up uh, again ewan mcgregor and charlie borman head out on the open roads uh on their bikes i loved a long way around um, not so keen on Long Way Down, but their relationship and their banter just keeps it going. So looking forward to that. That's on Apple TV. And uh, one more last one. I, I know Andy's not got it anymore. And I'm intrigued because I love the film so, so much. Uh, on Disney Plus is the uh, TV adaptation of Tom Wolfe's The Right Stuff. Fantastic. So that's a nice roundup of things to things to sit with your family and watch on TV. When you can't leave the house because um, yes. you can't we're locked leave down the again. house. <laughs> <laughs> okay so that's about it for this week but before we go as ever andy and i will tell you about our neat things something that we've watched enjoyed listened to played read andy what's your neat thing for this week my neat thing for this week is a character that i love returning to and every time that this character brings out something new i always wonder uh have we had enough of this by now and then once i see it or hear it i go no i could listen to this watch this forever and that is Alan Partridge and his podcast from the Oast House. It's on Audible and it's an Audible exclusive. And it's Alan Partridge deciding to do his own podcast with absolutely no knowledge of what he's doing <laughs> over 18 episodes. And within the first two minutes of listening, I'm sat on the bus to work, chuckling away, getting strange looks from people from other seats as I'm just giggling like a maniac. It is quality Partridge. It is the perfect, perfect medium for him to do something different. If you think his little mini radio things that he did uh, for Mid-Morning Matters, etc., were funny, you haven't heard anything until you've heard him trying to emulate the slow fading into the distance, the fade out at the end of an episode by walking away from his phone that he's recording it on and then sprinting to get to it to switch it off and stop it, but not editing that bit out. It's brilliant stuff. From the host house, Alan Partridge on Audible. You can get a, an initial free trial for Audible where you get to pick one thing for free. If you've got to pick something, pick this. And talking of Audible, have you had a chance to listen to the Sandman adaptation yet? Not yet. That is in my wish list at the moment. Okay, my neat thing is also a sad thing, but it's neat that we actually had this in our life. And that's that's the sad passing of Eddie Van Halen. Now, if you're a, a musician or a, music, uh, a musical fan or a rock fan like I am, then uh, the death of Eddie Van Halen at the age of 65 was, was an absolute shock. When the word, uh, when the term Argod was invented, it was invented for Eddie Van Halen. He revolutionized guitar in the same way that Jimi Hendrix did. And the, the lost music industry is absolutely huge. Uh, Van Halen were one of the reasons that I started playing in bands and um, uh, changed changed how I listened to music. They they made being guitar-based rock fun again, with especially the, the classic lineup for me, which was with, with David Lee Roth on, on, on vocals, an absolute genius of a guitar player and uh, an absolute um, 
devastating loss, but an absolute um, amazing, amazing artist. And um, and while it's sad, it's also neat that we we had someone like Eddie Van Halen in our lives and, and and made amazing music and just broke the rules on how to play guitar that that changed a generation of, of guitar players to this day. It was new, it was exciting, it was almost magical. So my neat thing, as I said, though it's sad, is Eddie Van Halen because we had him. We had him in our lives. <laughs> And that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. We'll be back hopefully next week with more news. Andy, any plans? Work and films. Uh, for next week, we should hopefully both get to see the new adaptation of Rebecca. Yes, looking forward to that, directed by Ben Wheatley. And also, as always, this Sunday night, I'll be doing my movie talk on Sunday over on Twitter, which this week, well, I'm going to do a sly reveal. I normally don't reveal this until the Wednesday but I'm going to be looking at found footage movies. Enjoyed the last one, by the way, Andy, the David Cronenberg one. Cronenberg. So if you like the show, as we said before, please subscribe, please leave a review. But in the meantime, you get your hair cut. You don't belong in Nashville.